Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Corey Deanna Lewis, founder of The Healthy Project and host of The Healthy Project Podcast. My mission is to bring awareness to health and wellness concerns that are impacting our communities. On this podcast, you'll learn strategies to improve your health from health professionals from around the world that are trying to make an impact in people's lives. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Project Podcast. I am your host, Corey Dion Lewis. I have a great guest uh, in the building today, Dr. John White, uh, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD and the author of Take Control of Your Cancer Risk, which is a great book. Dr. John, thank you so much for being on with me today. Absolutely. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. So be, before, you know, before we begin with, with the questions, I just want what, what was the motivation to start to write this book about cancer risk? It's really about the misinformation that exists around cancer. And there's this belief by most people that it's primarily caused by genetics mm-hmm. or just bad luck. And the reality is that about only 30% of cancer is caused by what we call inherited mutations. The rest is primarily influenced by lifestyle, what we eat, whether or not we're physically active, the quality of our sleep, how stressed we are, where we live. You know, some elements that you can control, but unless you know that, there's nothing you're going to do to take control of that risk. And in diabetes, we do that. We tell people what not to eat, you know, how active they need to be. We even created a category of pre-diabetes to, mm-hmm. to prevent people from getting there. And with heart disease, we refer to exercise as cardio. It implies uh, the benefits to the heart. But in cancer prevention, we often don't talk to patients about that other than some screening. And, and most cancers actually can't be screened. Right. And, and you know, I, I wanted to say when I read that in the book about um, you gave, you gave uh, a story about people not getting screenings because they don't, something doesn't run in their family that yeah. I've talked a lot about my mom who she didn't get her first mammogram um, until last year because yeah. she didn't, it didn't yeah. run in our, it didn't run in our family or she didn't know the history and we right. end up finding breast cancer. She's been oh. breast cancer free for the past year, but she, her, her same thing. She was like, I, it, I didn't know anybody yeah. that had breast cancer in her family. Right. So I didn't think I needed it. Yeah. So it's really about dispelling those myths and and giving people good quality information. Absolutely. So like you said in your book, um, we need a mindset change from I hope I don't get cancer Mm -hmm. to how can I prevent cancer? You know, why is that shift in mindset hard for people? Prevention is hard in general (laughs) to to get anyone to adopt behaviors because you often don't see the benefits for many years later. And sometimes with unhealthy behaviors, eating a lot of sugary treats or, or smoking gives people some immediate short-term relief uh, and pleasure. So why are they going to give these things up uh, for later? And then it's also about the lack of information. People are like, why would sleep impact how I get cancer or my level of stress? So it, it's really when you give people new information, it, it takes a while and to set in and, and people pause. And 
you know, some of these behavior changes are hard at first to do. So folks really want to know what's going to be the benefit. Right. You talk about diet and exercise, but Mm -hmm. can you talk to us a little bit about the connection between the social determinants of health and somebody's cancer risk? Absolutely. It's easy and flippant sometimes to be like, well, you need to eat more, you know, fruits and vegetables. But if fruits and vegetables aren't available where someone lives in their neighborhood, or they can't afford them, or there's no safe place to walk, you know, in their zip code where they live, it makes it very hard to adopt these lifestyle changes. We know the environment plays a role in the development of some type of cancers. If you're in a very polluted area of air and water, that can make it more difficult too. So we can't ignore those aspects of the social determinants that impact our health. And and I think COVID has taught us about the importance of that. I mean, many of us have known about them for years, but finally they're starting to get the attention that they deserve. It's not just about access to the healthcare system. It's also about being able to live a healthy lifestyle and, and having the resources to do that. Right. So, and it's really hard to live a healthy lifestyle when, when you don't have transportation and the gas station is across the street. Absolutely. I mean, we like to say that everyone lives within five miles from a pharmacy. Well, if you don't have a car, you don't have the cost that the money for the cost of transportation, five miles is pretty far. So we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, especially here in the Midwest when when it's getting colder. You, I don't want to walk yeah. five miles anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. um, so when, when talking preventative measures for cancer, mm-hmm. is there a better or worse screening? So, you know, um, when I'm working with somebody or talking to somebody about their preventative services, mm-hmm. um, and I'm talking about, for example, they're due for colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. like, oh, no, I don't want that. I want mm-hmm. the ColaGuard or, or the, the stool mm-hmm. sample. You know what I mean? Um is, is there, is that good or bad? You know, what, you know, are they missing out on finding potential risks by doing something that's, mm-hmm. you know, less invasive? Well, I, th- I think we're having more choices nowadays in terms of cancer screening, particularly for colorectal cancer. But remember, cancer is primarily a disease of aging. So when we're talking about screening, we're always talking at, at first about screening for people who are at average risk. So people who have cancer in their family that's diagnosed at an early age in the 20s or 30s or have multiple family members with cancer, they're not at average risk and they typically need to be screened sooner. And and remember, most cancers can't be screened for. We're, We're making some advancements in terms of some blood tests looking for some like cancer cell fragments that are discarded in the blood that maybe we could pick up on. But in terms of colorectal cancer, we really do have a bunch of different tests. You mentioned the fit test. There's different types of of fit tests. We'll really just have a piece of stool that you send into the lab and and they look for it for cancer cells. Colonoscopy in general has been preferred because if you have a polyp, then it can be removed. But it's been hard to get people to show up for colonoscopies. People in general don't like that concept. You might be screening too late starting at 50 because in general, cancer is a slow growing disease in the colon. But 
what I think is great, though, is that you're having the discussion with people and even talking about it. Because let's be honest, it doesn't work the first time. When I tell people <laughs> to do for their colonoscopy, that doesn't help the first time. Mammograms and others are a little better, but not always. Yeah. Know, skin cancer, et cetera, you, you often need a partner. You can't examine your own back. It's hard to examine you know, some personal areas uh, of your body. But you have to have those discussions and, and, and talk about it. And depending upon your personal risk, you'll figure out with your doctor what screening test is best for you. Right. Great, great. Um, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So in your book, there are some great meal plans in there. You talk a mm -hmm. lot about, you know, food. How does food play or what role does food play in our, our cancer prevention? You know, food plays a, a major role. And, and by the way, the reason why I include a lot of recipes and diets is because people will often say to me, tell me what to eat. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not that easy to do. I want to give people choice, but it's still this concept that food is as powerful as a prescription drug. So food really is medicine. Everything you, that you put in your mouth impacts your body. Um, and if you think about it, how do you feel after eating turkey? over Thanksgiving, you know, how do you feel eating a bunch of sugary treats, uh, you know, recently with Halloween, you feel differently than after you drink a couple glasses of wine. So inherently know that food impacts our body and, and what we're seeing in terms of processed meats, all the, you know, preservatives and chemicals, the salts that have to be used to give taste, to preserve, to prolong shelf life can be a challenge in, in terms of how they disrupt the growth of cells. Really, cancer is abnormal cell growth. So some of these chemicals in food are impacting how our cells divide. And that's what's increasing cancer risk. With sugary beverages and sugary treats, it could be more related to obesity, which really is, people think, well, it's just you know fat. Fat is metabolically active. It's impacting other hormones and, and chemicals in your body. And, and some cancers are hormonal dependent, prostate cancer, breast cancer, some other types. So food plays a critical ro role. And if you think about that food is medicine, then you know you decide, are, are you going to eat potato chips or are you going to eat an orange? And, and how is it right. going to impact your body? And you know the other point, Corey, is it's not about uh, you can never have a hamburger, you can never have a hot dog. You know, I'm not saying that. It's the daily choices that you make over time. So sure, you could have it, but not every day. That's the problem that we're having. You know, only one out of five of us eat fish once a week. One out of five. Fish could be a great way to improve your overall cancer risk and reduce it. Those fresh fruits and vegetables, the whole grains, the low-fat dairy. It's not the typical American diet, sadly. And, right. and that's why I think we're continuing to see a million new cases of cancer every year, a million, 600,000 deaths every year. It's a challenge. It's still a major leading cause of death. And even though we have these great advances in terms of treatment, it's not a walk in the park. It doesn't mean that right. you're going to have quality life. So if we can prevent, we should try to do that and really want to empower people with the information they need to take control of their risk. Right. I, I think you said something that was very important in the fact that I feel like a lot of people, and this is just my opinion, I don't have any mm -hmm. facts on this, but when they think about their body fat, they mm -hmm. just think it's just there. Like it's not yeah. doing anything. It's not, right. you, know, you know what I mean? So yeah. 
they're not thinking about how this is affecting not mm-hmm. just their how they look, but their their internal yeah. health. It's, you know, what we call central adiposity, the area or, you know, around our stomach. It's, as I said, metabolically active. It secretes, you know, these inflammatory hormones. And in general, inflammation is bad. And in many ways, cancer is a disease of inflammation. So as we secrete these hormones through our excess fat, that's putting us at increased risk. And what I really wanted to point out, I didn't want to give it like a medical school primer lecture on it. But I wanted people to know there is science Mm -hmm. behind these recommendations. It's not just to be like, oh, you know, go exercise and, and, you know, eat healthy. That's not helpful to say to anyone without giving people useful advice and and giving them some of the background. I'm going to be honest, you know, my physician colleagues are not the best by any means in giving nutritional information or advice on, you know, how to be physically active. So really wanted to provide a resource of good information. Right. And you said, you said something about science. And so this leads to my next question about probably my favorite chapter in the book, uh, talking about how our emotions affect our health. This is so fascinating to me. Can Mm -hmm. you talk, talk about that a little bit more about how our actual emotions and, you know, in our, you know, our stress and all that, how that really affects our body. There really is a mind body connection. Yeah. And We've kind of known about it for thousands of years, but we've ignored it. And, and I talk about in the chapter how, you know, when I was in medical school, if you talked about the role of stress, the role of emotions, you really were not ridiculed, but looked down upon as if you weren't scientific. But what we have learned over years is the role of stress. You know, Dr. Dean Ornish has written a lot about it in heart disease. We, we know about the broken heart syndrome when, when people lose a, a loved one or spouse for many years. And think about it, before an important meeting, you may feel your heart racing, right? Those palpitations, your your hands are sweaty, your palms. Think about what chronic stress is doing to your body every day. You feel it when it's acute, but others, when it becomes chronic, may not recognize all of those physical signs and symptoms. And it's not just damaging, you know, to the aspect that you're feeling overtly these physical symptoms, but also at the cellular level. And it's causing cells to make mistakes when they divide. And think about it. If you have a toxic boss and you're stressed by that, how do you function? You're not at maximum performance. Mm -hmm. You're not doing that well. You make mistakes every now and then because you're rushed. You you feel like it's going to be criticized. You're you're not on your A-game. What do you think cells are doing at that level in terms of dividing? So remember, I talked about how cancer really is abnormal cell growth. Your cells are making mistakes when they divide. There's mutations that are occurring. And some of those cells are becoming cancer cells. You're decreasing your body's immune function, the ability to fight infection, the ability to fight these abnormal cells. So it's not surprising where we see the role of stress. And again, it's that scientific principles. It's the role of cortisol and other aspects. And put it in the reverse. When you exercise, you go to the gym, you go for a run, you play basketball. How do you feel afterwards? You feel great. You never say, oh, I wish I didn't go, right? I wish (laughs) I played again, right? It's the release of those endorphins, those feel-good hormones. So think about it on the other extreme. What's happening when you're under chronic stress, when you're suffering from major depression, 
these are having aspects. And we know when that's the case, when you're depressed, when you're stressed, you're not thinking about your colonoscopy. You're not thinking about what you're eating for breakfast. (laughs) You're just trying to get by during the day. You're not sleeping well. So it all adds up and impacts your cancer risk. Right. So what are, you know, are there, as we all know, the past couple of years, stress and stress Mm -hmm. management have been are really important strat mm-hmm. things we can do yeah. for our stress, not even just, you know, our, you know, cancer risk. Mm-hmm. What are some, are there some really good stress management mm-hmm. outside of exercise, some good stress yeah. management strategies that people can start to implement into their day? Right. So many of us have learned about mindfulness over mm-hmm. the past two years and, and breathing techniques. And there's a lot of great apps out there to help guide you through mindfulness. And I tell people, it's not like, oh, you're just going to go sit in a room and, you know, close the, you know, drapes or shades and the lights and go, "Mm," like that, that's not mindfulness. That's not meditation. I say, you have to practice at it just like you would do if you took up a musical instrument or you took up a sport. It takes a little bit of work doing it every day or several times a week and assessing it after a couple of months. But what we do know is that is helpful for many people in quieting the mind, in getting rid of these harmful thoughts. It's about practicing gratitude. I got a gratitude journal. I had heard about it from a lot of folks. And you basically write down every day one thing that you're grateful for. And you may think, oh, that sounds hokey. But you know what? You do it over time. Mm -hmm. You do it for several weeks. You will feel differently when you're forced to write something down every day. I was talking to someone the other day about the need to practice forgiveness. I'm like, why are people still holding on to things, you know, that happened 20 years ago at a wedding? Maybe that's because I'm Italian. (laughs) I might say that, but you you can't control those things. At some point you have to, to let go. I I put in there, there's this great, you know, uh, Buddha quote that says something, you know, along the lines, like anger is the poison that you drink that you Mm. think other people are going to suffer from. So you have to get to a point where, learn to let go. You know, I learned from talking to a lot of mental health professionals that, you know, one strategy can be for many people that have anxiety is you schedule it and maybe like, what does that mean? So what do we typically do? We do that when we try to go to sleep at the end of the day, we're going to review our day, right? Right. <laughs> right. all the things that we have to do. Well, guess what? Maybe do that at three 30 or four o'clock in the afternoon. And you see every day, this is the time that I'm going to focus on things that I'm worried about. And, you know, then I'm going to be done with it. It takes a little bit of work, but people have mm-hmm. found, found some value with that. And then, you know, clearly some folks need help and you have to know it's okay not to be okay. And when do you reach for help and, and how do you find that help and, and talking to friends and loved ones and professionals about it. But the role of stress, the role of mind-body connection play a critical role. And that doesn't mean that you, you can will yourself to not get cancer. I'm not suggesting that. Right. But I'm talking about the biological and chemical basis that stress has in terms of the development of cancer. And, and it's real. Absolutely. And one other thing that is real, and I think you talked about this maybe in the beginning of the mm-hmm. book, but it was that when it comes to cancer research, and I know you've talked mm-hmm. about this on Twitter as well, about needing more people of color to participate yeah. in in research so we can get mm-hmm. better outcomes for, you know, black and brown people. Um, yep. Just, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, what are some possible solutions that we can do to get more people of color to be 
I wouldn't say people are, are afraid of participating in research. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that yeah. is the case. But, you know, what are some possible solutions to improve cancer research for those people of color? And as you know, I worked the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for many years. A big priority of mine was publishing the data about who participates in clinical trials. And particularly in cancer trials, we see low percentage of black and brown people. Even when we're talking about cancers that disproportionately impact people that are black and brown. And and that is very frustrating. And these are occurring in geographically and ethnically diverse areas of the country, you know, at major centers that primarily are in urban areas. So how do we get more people to participate, particularly in cancer trials? Because if we're talking about a diabetes trial, I'm going to be honest, we've got like seven, eight great drugs already out there. So if you don't participate in it, you're still going to get good treatment. If you fail standard therapy, in cancer, and you don't get the opportunity to participate in a clinical trial, your options can be very limited. And that, I'm talking about morbidity and mortality, the quality of your life and the length of your life. But often people aren't asked. So it's not always people are saying no, people aren't even asked to participate. So I, I think you know publishing the data is, is a wake-up call to let people know how bad it is, maybe 3% of clinical trial participants in cancer are people of color. I think we have to find ways to address it. I've been a big proponent of we have to pay people to participate in clinical trials. I'm not saying we're paying thousands of dollars, but it's an issue of equity. It's an issue of fairness. It's not just about diversity, uh, but it's it's overall fairness. I, I wrote an editorial in USA Today about how, you know, with the NCAA, we're going to pay players because everyone is benefiting from them. Mm. It's the same thing in cancer trials. Everyone is benefiting from the participants and we should acknowledge the value that they're bringing. So I, I think we're, we have to do that. I think we have to simplify the amount of work that it takes to participate in clinical trial. And I, we've done that during COVID, the number of visits that you have to have, the number of times you have to come see to the doctor, the number of samples. I think all of those are going to help. We have to have more outreach. We have to have more people of color participate as physicians and researchers and as, you know clinical research associates. That's going to take time because there's a pipeline that we have to get through, but we need to be working on all these things now. We need to make it much easier to participate in a clinical trial and say upfront that we want a diverse population in the study that we're conducting. We often don't do that. They, they enroll who comes in the door and if they don't come in the door, then they're not gonna get in. So there's a lot of work to do on there, but I feel like we're starting to make some headroom. At least I hope we are. Absolutely, yeah, it's, ne- it's never, never hard to say, hey, we need more black and brown people to participate, yeah. to save lives. You, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Well, Dr. White, thank you so much for being on with me today. Thank you so much for the book. Um, anybody yeah. out there, take control no. of your cancer risk. Indeed. Yes. Um, if <laughs> I'd anybody, be a bad author if I didn't have a picture. <laughs> anybody, if anybody out there wants to get a hold of you, uh, learn more about you or your book, you know, where can they find you? They can follow me on social at Dr. John White, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, They can find me at WebMD. Uh, Always feel free to reach out. Awesome. Again, Dr. White, thank you so much for being all with me today. And everybody, thank you for listening. I'll holler at you next time.